You are now listening to What the Health, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate your way to better health. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 75 of What the Health. I'm your host, Lena Lahiri, and today I have special guest Jessica Ash joining me. Jessica is a functional nutritionist who coaches and educates women on all things hormones. She works primarily with women who have PCOS and thyroid issues, teaching them how to nourish their bodies and master their metabolism. She has a special place in her heart for helping women become empowered about their health since she too used to struggle with symptoms of PCOS, hypothyroidism, and autoimmunity on a daily basis. In this episode, we really dive into the metabolism and discuss the diet and lifestyle practices we are encouraged to engage in that's actually having a negative impact on our metabolism instead of a positive one, such as following certain diets, fasting, and excessively exercising. Then we go over strategies to help you heal your metabolism by addressing things like mineral balancing, uh, thyroid and adrenal health, and we finish off the discussion by talking about PCOS. Jessica is an absolute wealth of information, so I encourage you to follow her on Instagram at Jessica Ash Wellness, and also check out her website, www.jessicaashwellness.com, where you can also access her online course, Fully Nourished, which provides a step-by-step blueprint to nourishing your body and healing your metabolism. So without further ado, let's get into today's show. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it is absolutely my pleasure to have you on the show. I've been following you for quite some time and you're just such a wealth of information. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Me too. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. So why don't we start off by you giving us a little bit of your background information and how you got into this field of work? Yeah. Yeah. So I always tell people, I feel like I was just catapulted into this, into this work. Um, From the very beginning, I had issues with my hormones ever since I went through puberty. So from then on, uh, now I can look back and see what was going on, but I really went through the ringer since I was 12 or 13 years old. So um, I was struggling with period issues already. And I was put on hormonal birth control at a very young age, 14, 15. Um, And I was just on it for a few years, not really thinking anything of it. And so when I was around, I think it was like 18, 19, um, somewhere around there, I went off, I just decided I, I was starting to get more interested in holistic health, I was starting to exercise and kind of think about what I was eating. That was when gluten free was just starting to <laughs> catch on and pay Leo was starting to get popular. And so I started to really care a little bit more about what was going in my body. And when I went off of birth control, that was really when the issues just exploded. That was really when crap just hit the fan for for my health. And I started struggling with a lot of different autoimmune symptoms, um, hormonal symptoms, um, cycle issues. And so it took me a while. I was jumping from doctor to doctor to doctor. And I realized, okay, doctors are not going to help me. They're not even interested in helping me. So that kind of led me more to naturopaths and more natural practitioners. And even with them, I felt like it was just kind of the same approach, you know, test, 
prescribe supplements instead of medications and send you on your merry way. And you're still left wondering what the heck is going on with my body. Um, Some things would get better. Some things would get worse. And I realized at some point, my er very early twenties, like I'm on my own here. I have to figure this out for myself. And I just started digging. I started researching hormones. I started looking into nutrition, kind of started to experiment on myself a lot. And very quickly, I realized I'm very interested in this work. So I went and became a personal trainer. Um, I started working with menopausal women a lot. uh, And I was doing that for a few years. And all the while, I started to get more and more interested in nutrition because I realized it's kind of calories in, calories out thing. This very like bodybuilder style approach or, um, you know, long distance runner approach, which were very popular approaches at the time, are not working for women. And I wanted to understand why. And it really led me to understanding the female metabolism and how it's so different than male physiology and how it's so important for us to support our bodies and give it the right tools or how do we expect it to heal. And that's really landed uh, me where I am today. I really just tell women what I needed to know as a young girl. Um, And I wish that somebody would have just explained it in a way that I understood. Well, yeah. And I love that you say that, you know, we're in this world of wanting to be equal. We kind of place men and women in the same kind of category. We're vastly different. And I love how you make that separation. Like the female metabolism is different. We require different things. We probably require more fat on our body, right? Than males to function. Yes. Um, so I really like that you make that distinction because we're not just little men. We're we're different. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm loving how, you know, I feel like the health and wellness field is moving in that direction a little bit, mm-hmm. but there's still and I think it's Dr. Stacey Sims that has coined the term women aren't small men. Mm. But I also feel like in a lot of ways, we are still treating ourselves like small men. Yes. You know, Even if we're eating different and we're acknowledging like, oh, my energy needs are higher. We're still trying to uh, work out like men. Um, we're still taking a lot of this kind of uh, these approaches where, yeah, we can do these things. That, that's not the argument here. I'm not saying that women can't, but I think understanding and being educated on the consequences, the physiological Mm. consequences is really, really important. And most of us just have no clue. Yeah. So why don't you talk about some of those consequences that happen specifically to our metabolism when we engage in this kind of lifestyle, like you you talked about the bodybuilding kind of lifestyle, and I have been there um, and and been out. (laughs) Um, But what are some of these consequences that you see the most often? Yeah. So I would say that I guess right now we can say that the ideal is still very aesthetic focused and it does seem like we're moving away from being obsessed with leanness. We're going more to that like muscular curviness, but there's still this unrealistic expectation of being overly lean and -hmm. being able to maintain that type of leanness. And to get there, it really does require us to put our body under immense amounts of of physical stress. Very rarely is a woman going to be able to maintain that type of a lot of muscle mass and a lot of leanness uh, without putting some type of stress on her body. There are the unicorns out there, but it's, it's very, um, it's very rare. And what I would say is like the, the, you know, the masculine hustle, I guess we could call it, which our society really thrives on it, you know, checklists, success, achievements, hustle. This is very much a masculine approach and the the male physiology can thrive under a lot of stress. It's meant to thrive under a lot of stress 
us because it's dominated by output from a biological standpoint. Males do not reproduce. And so uh, what happens is males are going to, the, the way that they use energy is going to be very different. It's very much that calories in, calories out. The more they do, the more action that they take, the more they intake, and that will kind of balance itself out. It's a very steady kind of hormonal rhythm that they have. They're driven by the circadian rhythm where the rise of the sun, and as the sun falls, their testosterone falls. And then the next day, it kind of resets that pattern. Where women, we have a 28-day cycle that kind of mimics the moon. So Every single day of our cycle is different hormonally, metabolically, um, gut, our gut microbiome is shifting, our immunity is shifting, and our central nervous system function is shifting. These are shifts that are happening on a daily basis because no day is, is exactly the same in the female cycle. You know, we go through menstruation and then we're moving into the follicular phase and then we ovulate, which is kind of that star of the show that allows us to create so much progesterone. And then as we shift into the luteal phase, every phase is going to be very different on a hormonal and metabolic level. Mm -hmm. And if we're trying to fit ourselves into these very rigid kind of rule-based achievement, success, goal-oriented um, patterns that is so dominating in the health and wellness and, and fitness space, we really miss out where we're having, we really have to disassociate in a lot of ways from our body to be able to fit that mold because our body does not work that way. It's very dynamic. It's shifting. It's cycling. It's, it's, it's almost like a, a professional shapeshifter constantly. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And, you know, like also so empowering because historically there's been so much shame around our menstrual cycle. It's like, you have to hide it. Um, I mean, you know, biblical days, it's dirty, it's unclean. Uh, and that still pulls through into today's era where it's still something that we don't really talk about. We talk about it more now, but if what you're saying, uh, what I'm hearing correctly is that we need to, we need to program our lives kind of according to what is happening through our cycle. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm curious what happens with menopause then are women still cycling or what's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, Those are our great questions. So I would say like, because we live in this very plug it up, suck it up culture, like you said, mm -hmm. we went, we, we shifted from a very shame-based kind of taboo to now it's almost an ignoring of the cycle. Like, well, mm -hmm. we can just all become equal and, you know, I, I can do it. If, if I can actually do it better than a male. And that is not the answer either, right? That, that is going from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. We need to still acknowledge those shifts and changes. But when it comes to menopause, pause. It's very interesting because there's a lot of question marks with, with menopause, you know, from the kind of standard perspective, it's very much like the cycle shuts down, you, you stop ovulating, the ovaries run out of eggs. I put quotes around that. Mm -hmm. And um, then, you know, everything just kind of is, is steady across the board. But when you actually look at women, and I've worked with a lot of menopausal women, you still see very cyclical patterns. Mm -hmm. Even if they're not cycling, there's still some type of cycling going on. It's just shifted from 
relying upon the ovaries to now the thyroid, the adrenals, the pituitary gland, the brain and central nervous system are really kind of taking the lead in the metabolism. The ovaries are not making as much hormones. And so there is a little bit more of a steady constant. There's not as much of a need for estrogen because estrogen is that hormone of growth and cellular proliferation that's so needed when we're, you know, building a baby or um, making breast milk or those types of things, those applications when you're not reproducing, you don't need as much estrogen. Mm -hmm. Um, But then that comes with the kind of decrease in progesterone as well. When that cycle stops, you're no longer ovulating. So you're no longer making progesterone, but the adrenals can still make a little bit of pregnenolone, DHEA, which can act as precursors to estrogen and progesterone. But really in menopause, you see that the thyroid and the adrenals take take the brunt of the weight in the metabolism. Mm-hmm. after the hormones reduce or that after the sex hormones start to reduce. Mm-hmm. And when women go through that transition, if their adrenals and their thyroid are already struggling, they, they are under eating, they've been yo-yo dieting their whole life. They've been going through periods of over-exercise and under-exercise. They've been really hard on themselves, you know, their body image. Um, a lot of times we pick up baggage along the way in life if we're not actively and consciously working through our emotions and our feelings and becoming aware of ourselves. And so when women go through menopause, there's all this focus on the estrogen and the progesterone and kind of hormone replacement therapy and not really asking the question of is the is the symptoms or are the these hormonal issues that menopausal women are struggling with a result of the low hormones mm. or is it actually a result of the lifestyle uh and the the, met, the metabolism and are the hormones actually just low because that's what starts to happen there's no longer a higher high need for these hormones so that's kind of the question that I'm always asking. And the research is still very primitive because it's kind of been like, you know, closed book. Like we've decided that, you know, we run out of eggs and we're no longer cycling closed book. Mm. And I like to say, well, that that's not a closed book. And I would like to know more, but really it's a great question. And I ask it pretty regularly as well. What's really going on. And I'm hoping that we continue to explore that for women. Amazing. Yeah. That's, um, that's a huge gap in the literature, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. So what are some of the strategies that you recommend for premenopausal women when it comes to a way of metabolic eating? First, what is, what is metabolic eating slash living? And I put living in there because the two are, are intricately tied. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of see, starting to see a split in the health and wellness space right now where we have the, the common, you know, keto, low carb, paleo, intermittent fasters, this kind of group of people that's very focused on autophagy and running off of our backup systems, ketosis, gluconeogenesis. These are systems that the body has created, um, as kind of backup systems when we're not, when we're in a famine or when we have, there's some other environment mental or external stressor going on. And the mindset behind these, these things, and even the literature is going to follow the idea that um, was, I think it was in the early 1900s, it was kind of two, two schools of thought. And one was that if you kind of slow down the organism, you slow everything down, you reduce their calories, you kind of, it's almost like you put yourself into this kind of um, 
slightly frozen state that mm-hmm. you'll live longer. It will increase your longevity because there's only so much energy to go around. And then, you know, once we've used up our, our energy, if we've used up too, too much energy, our, we'll just die. That's kind of the, the idea behind this uh, increasing longevity space using restriction, under eating, um, going long periods without eating, um, you know, uh, trying to stimulate autophagy. Mm-hmm. And then you have this kind of new emerging space, the bioenergetic space, or the sometimes people call it the pro-metabolic space, where mm-hmm. you're looking at your metabolism from a perspective of it, it can only get better from here. Like there's no limit to how well your body can function as long as you give it the right tools and the resources that it needs, that it's a constantly stoked fire. And as long as you're regularly stoking the fire and you're reducing the compounds or the hormones that are going to age you and, and kind of be the, uh, induce the stress response, these backup responses that you can increase longevity. And you can also, you know, it, reduce all types of symptoms and issues and get your hormones and your body in harmony and balance. And it's kind of these two perspectives are now really starting to split and you're starting to see this war in the health and wellness space. And my mentality is that the body knows what to do. It always knows what to do. And everything that it does is for a very specific purpose. It doesn't break. It doesn't just do things randomly. It does. It's doing everything for a purpose. And if it's not doing what you want it to do, it either doesn't have what it needs, doesn't have the raw materials or resources that it needs, it's not getting enough energy, or it's not in the right environment. And those symptoms or diseases or imbalances or whatever we want to call them are signals from the body that something is not right. Mm -hmm. So what, how do you go about convincing someone, uh, I don't know, is one way better than the other? I I know your particular views on things like intermittent fasting and, and ketosis, but is pro-metabolic eating better than that? What what would be the downside to doing, you know, large amounts of fasting and ketosis and, you know, low carb or paleo or whatever? Uh, yeah, I would say that how do you convince someone? You usually don't. They often have to come across this information for themselves and experiment themselves. And for many people who have experimented with things like keto and low carb and fasting, a lot of them will say, even including myself, I was uh, paleo and then carnivore and low carb and keto for a period of almost four years. And I could tell people that I can, I have had conversations with people, I should say, where you really think it's working right up until it's not. It's mm-hmm. almost like you are you are perceiving that running off of that adrenaline and that cortisol because it feels so good to do that. It's so anti-inflammatory in the sense of it's suppressing inflammation. It can give you feelings of euphoria and mental clarity. Um, it's stimulating because adrenaline and cortisol makes you mentally sharp and focused because you're in a survival state. Mm-hmm. Um, think of it as running from an angry bear or being hunted. It's going to heighten your certain areas in your brain that are there for survival, but it's also going to lower other things um, because your body's not going to be expending energy on everything you need. It's going to be prioritizing the things you need for survival. And the unfortunate part is when you're in this state, unless you are really um, hurting for minerals or you're not in a good place and you crash really fast, which there are those people that really, they start to 
experiment with keto or they experiment with paleo or they start intermittent fasting and they immediately see issues. Mm -hmm. The uh, unfortunate part is a lot of people will do this as long as it feels good. And then once it stops feeling good and once it stops working for them, they'll see that, um, they'll keep trying, they'll they'll keep trying harder and harder and harder. And they'll keep becoming more and more restricted and more and more until they realize at some point, this is not working for me. My hair is falling out. I'm no longer able to sleep. I'm frazzled all the time. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do it. I'm not functioning as I used to. And what happened is they were what I call stealing from their future. When you are running off of your backup system, when you're forcing your liver to create glucose for your central nervous system in your brain, because you're not eating it, you are stealing from your future and the debt collector is going to come calling and when it does you're going to feel like you hit a wall because now your minerals have been depleted you know adrenaline is a diuretic so your potassium your sodium your magnesium your calcium unless you're actively working hard to maintain these these minerals in ketosis you're going to get to a point where you've depleted these minerals and then you, now your central nervous system is is no longer very resilient to stress and for a lot of people unfortunately if they're not willing to be open minded about it they're not going to realize it until it's too late or until they hit that wall and realize uh oh i've got myself into a place of metabolic disaster mm. you know you explain it so eloquently as well and in a way that really helps well, it helps me understand what's going on. It's something that I've experienced uh, directly and fasting was kind of my poison, but I did not want to admit that it was the fasting that was causing all of the issues on top of excessive working out. Like, and my Mm -hmm. fast, you know, I was convinced that intermittent fasting was healthy for everyone. And, you know, you start that at the 12 hour kind of thing, which is, you know, is pretty easy. And then before you know it, you're at that like 14, 16 hour window and, and you just don't want to admit that that's what's doing it because you've bought into this narrative that is like, no, but this is going to increase longevity and it's going to do X, Y, and Z. Um, And so I really feel that there's a strong resistance because of all of that information coming out at us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how, how would you think anything different from everywhere that you look online, intermittent fasting is toted as kind of this cure all almost. Um, And the thing is, is when you look at the research, that's not true, especially Mm -hmm. for your metabolism. The research is very clear on its impacts on thyroid function, its impacts on your minerals, which will therefore affect your adrenals since your adrenals are the main uh, hormone glands that are going to secrete your your glucocorticoids and then your mineral corticoids. So your mineral regulating hormones and your glucose regulating hormones. And I've unfortunately had to work with so many women who, who fell into that trap of keto, low carb, intermittent fasting. And then when they start to hit that wall, the unfortunate part is when you start to integrate carbohydrates back in you're you have a body that you told for however long you were on uh, your low carb journey that it's not supposed to burn glucose anymore. Mm-hmm. And it so it is used to now burning free fatty acids, which is a highly, highly inflammatory process for a lot of, de- of, of the cells in your body. You yeah. know, certain cells can't run on, on uh, fats at all, like their central nervous system, your brain, your hair follicles, these really high energy, like high, um, these mitochondria that really need a lot of energy. There are certain cells that really can run on both. And um, for some of these cells, they do not 
uh, thrive while running on free fatty acids. And so then when you, int you integrate your glucose back in, you really start to see the effects of the physiological insulin resistance that you yourself induced. So that's the, that's the hardest thing. The hardest pill to swallow is there's a lot of women who actually made themselves more insulin resistant by intermittent fasting and by doing these very low carb diets, because the body is a, is a feedback system. It it's going to respond to its environment. It's going to do what it needs to do to keep you alive. But these stress hormones have huge amounts of impact on the fat cells, leptin, ghrelin, all these satiety hormones and these famine hormones that are going to really regulate your ability to use glucose for fuel. Mm, yeah. And, and, you know, I think it's important too to, to just say like, this isn't like blaming or shaming anyone but mm -hmm. we do have to be accountable for the things that we're doing and the content that we're consuming, which can lead to certain behaviors. And, and a lot of women are desperate mm -hmm. to, to look good, to reach the standard. Um, we all want to live longer. So it's like, a, it, it's understandable why you would go down that road. Um, thankfully, I did not do low carb while I did intermittent fasting. Um, awesome. Yeah, that would have been good. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, those are like the, the, I would say the match made in hell. <laughs> oh yeah. That's yeah. That that's brutal. Um, but I will say that it took when I hit that wall, it took a year for me, um, to not be able to exercise. And I have a personal training background, mm -hmm. Um, and I actually, like, I couldn't even do a push up without being in so much pain. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I hit that wall. So I hope that for anyone listening, that's going through something like that, or maybe, you know, you're, you're thinking about embarking on a keto or a, a fasting journey to do your research, really do your research. Yeah. Yeah. And don't let somebody just say that, oh, well, the research says this, yeah. um, the research that they do pull is only done on men and menopausal women. And even that research is very mm, iffy. It's not telling you that it's a good thing. It's not, but certain research is not going to necessarily come out and say it's a bad, a completely bad thing either. When you actually look at the impacts on your thyroid and your sex hormones, those are the things you really want to care about because those are going to th be the things that you have to fix later on or rebalance later on. And they're not always easy. Like you said, it took a year. I know when I got in my burned out place, it really took a year for me to just feel better. Yeah. <laughs> and then once I started feeling a little bit better, then I could actually get to a place where I felt great again. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was definitely a process for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now you talk about the thyroid and the adrenals, and you also talk about mineral balancing. Mm -hmm. Um, what goes on? You talked a little bit about how the thyroid and, and the adrenals take a hit. What kind of goes on with them? And what are some strategies to help to heal those glands? Yeah, yeah. So what a lot of people don't realize is that the thyroid is uh, and all the all the hormonal glands, you know, the adrenals, the ovaries, uh, or the testes, they're all in kind of a negative feedback system with the brain. So the brain is talking to these organs regularly using the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, and sending signals based on your external environment and your nutritional environment. So what's coming in, what's your internal emotional state, and then what's around you, and it's going to regulate your metabolism accordingly. And what a lot of people don't realize is that fat is safety. It's like you can think of it as like a storage container for like a 
think of it as like a doomsday prepper, you know, when you, um, instead of just cooking your meal and consuming your meal and eating it, which would be the equivalent of when you eat your cells, use that energy as fuel and to repair things and to burn calories and all that, that stuff. Instead of doing that, your body is taking some of that fuel and using it and burning it, cutting some corners, not prioritizing everything just so that it can stay surviving. And then because it's so uncertain about its future and its environment, it's going to put some in its, in its storage pantry. And that's what fat cells are. They can expand to 10 times their size, well, most can, and store glucose, free fatty acids, and toxins like heavy metals and estrogens and anything that's fat soluble. So fat cells are really just storage containers. And I think sometimes we see um, fat as bad or we don't really understand fat, but that's just what it is. And so when the body's unsafe, it's going to be more likely to store fat. And the way that it does that is by many different hormones, but talking about the thyroid in particular, the thyroid uh, hormone specifically uh, T3, active T3, is what allows your cells to, in part, take up glucose and use glucose. Every single cell in your body uses T3 to, in part, uh, burn glucose and make energy in the mitochondria. And so when you do not have enough T3, everything slows down. So it's kind of your metabolic regulator. In the adrenals, we have like aldosterone, we have um, cortisol, we have adrenaline, which then stimulate hormones like insulin and glucagon. And insulin is a blood sugar lowering hormone, which I don't understand why everyone in the health and wellness space does not understand that it is the key that gets blood sugar into the yeah. cell. Like it's, it's not bad. <laughs> um, it's good. And then glucagon is actually the hormone that raises blood sugar. It's the one that actually is going to break down your own tissue and turn it into glucose. And we kind of like the whole keto, low carb fasting community just overlooks glucagon altogether. And it's just very funny to me because glucagon is the hormone that you, if you're worried about insulin, you should actually be worried about glucagon, mm -hmm. but becoming uh, sensitive to these hormones is really reliant upon what's going on with the thyroid and the adrenals. And if the adrenals are having to output so much cortisol and adrenaline constantly to break down your own tissues for fuel uh, and send your tissues to the liver to be converted into glucose, to put blood sugar back into the bloodstream, your adrenals are going to be burnt. I don't want to say burnt out, but they are working hard to do a job that they're not really supposed to do. You don't want them having to secrete huge amounts of cortisol and adrenaline because then that takes away from the other many dozens of hormones that they create, things like DHEA and aldosterone and all the hormones that are going to impact your longevity your metabolism, all of those things. And unfortunately, when your stress hormones are extremely elevated, it's also going to affect your neurotransmitters. So it can increase serotonin by a lot, uh, put you in that kind of like high serotonin learned helplessness state. You go from a place of fight or flight to just completely frozen. You're, you're not responding to your environment anymore very well because you've burned through so many minerals. And the thyroid is now suppressed because the pituitary, which uh, puts out TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, it's actually a pituitary hormone, it's not thyroid hormone, um, TSH is going to be affected and by these stress hormones. And so your body is going to secrete thyroid hormone based on stressors. And if your body does not deem it safe, it's going to slow thyroid function down to conserve energy, conserve minerals and conserve nutrients. And that is a really the place where we, I, I like to call it hypometabolic, where you've gone into this place where your body's just running off of stress hormones, running off of cortisol and adrenaline, making its own fuel by breaking you down, breaking down your hair, your skin, your nails, your gut tissue, all of the stuff that you would like to keep good and keep 
keep intact Mm -hmm. and your thyroid function is no longer running your, your metabolism. Your thyroid is no longer the driver of the metabolism. The body's burning calories using stress hormones. And that puts you in that kind of central nervous system state of, of being sympathetic, you know, fight or flight. You're, Mm -hmm. you're, um, you're very cautious. You're, uh, very, yeah, hypervigilant. You're, you might feel mentally focused and good, but you're going to really feel like you're not, um, you're not getting to where you want to go health wise. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, wow, that's so fascinating. So what are some of you, you've been mentioning a lot about minerals. Um, can you just touch on minerals and yeah. what are some of just some simple strategies that people can do to start healing the thyroid and the adrenals? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say simply focus when you're first starting with minerals, you want to just focus on those main electrolyte minerals, mm-hmm. calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium. Um, a lot of people, if there's people that are listening that eat a very high meat diet, then you also want to be conscious of your phosphorus intake. So um, calcium is a very important mineral. Uh, it's gotten a lot of demonization lately, just because we went through that period in the nineties and early two thousands, where it was very popular to supplement calcium. Everyone and their mom was supplemented calcium. And then the functional space started talking that, you know, don't supplement calcium, but we still need calcium. And there's a lot of people now that are cutting dairy. And then some people are actually cutting vegetables. And so you've gotten to the point where, where are you getting your calcium from? Because dairy is going to be the most bioavailable source and bones as well. So if you're making broths and things like that, but if you're not eating those things and you're just eating muscle meat, um, and vegetables, you're not getting enough that bioavailable calcium. that's so important for bone structure and teeth and hair. And the body is going to have to regulate that calcium by increasing that prolactin to break down that bone so that your cells get what they need and can kind of move that mineral around. Calcium is important. And I love dairy for calcium. Um, I think, you know, high quality dairy is where it's at for that mineral and getting enough in balance with your muscle needs is so important. That calcium to phosphorus ratio is really going to drive both inflammation and regulate inflammation and metabolic function. So calcium is really important, but getting it from the right sources is even more important. Um, And then with magnesium, if you look at magnesium, you know, humans would have gotten most of their magnesium from drinking natural waters, spring waters that would move over stones and, um, and then also bathing and soaking and spending time in these waters. So that would be the main source of magnesium. There's a lot of magnesium in, in foods in small amounts, but our main source would have been our drinking water and our kind of bathing water, whether that was in like the, um, spending time in the ocean or freshwater lakes and things like that. Um, that's where magnesium would majority would come from. And so we don't, a lot of us don't do that anymore. So um, transdermal magnesium can actually be a very strategic source to to get it from. And it can be quite inexpensive. Something as simple as like an Epsom salt bath or magnesium flakes, like magnesium chloride baths can be an incredible way to get magnesium in. Um, And then even uh, I really like a source called magnesium bicarbonate as well. I think it can, um, one of the, the nice things about water that would be in a natural spring and running over stones as bicarbonate would be picked up. And bicarbonate is a special substance for the pancreas. The pancreas produces bicarbonate uh, for the, the main purpose of neutralizing stomach acid when, when the contents of the stomach drop into the small intestine. And so the pancreas is going to secrete bicarbonate and it has not high needs for bicarbonate. And when people are struggling with bicarbonate, um, uh, not having enough or struggling with making it digestion can be very, very poor and overall, uh, you know, acid alkaline balance can also be poor in the body. So magnesium is 
quite easy. You can make magnesium bicarbonate yourself. Um, so I like transdermal sources and magnesium bicarbonate, but I know a lot of people like to supplement it as well in forms like glycinate and malate and all that stuff. Um, and then for sodium and potassium, these two minerals are very important for adrenal function. So potassium and sodium are burned through faster than almost all other minerals when it comes to being under stress, metabolic stress, environmental stress, and a lot of us really hurt for it. But we can trust our, our body's cravings and desires for especially salt. Um, salt, our body actually will tell us when it needs salt. If you like things really salty or you need more salt, that's a good sign that that's a great place to start. Mm. Um, sea salt is very easy addition, very inexpensive addition to the diet. Diet. And I personally like like a just a plain white sea salt, a kosher salt, or like a salted gray salt. Um, and then potassium. Potassium is an interesting one because potassium helps blood sugar get into the cell almost as much as insulin does. So potassium yeah. is very important for blood sugar regulation, but also nerve conduction. So the nerve conduction to the heart, nerve conduction to the, the bowels, the, the gut, when you're struggling with constipation or your gut kind of feels sluggish or immobile, um, heart palpitations, there, there can be a lot of repercussions of not getting enough potassium. And the daily recommended needs are 4,700 milligrams. It's a very Jeez. high need. And yeah. so most women are not getting this much potassium at all. And potassium mostly comes from carbohydrate sources. So fruits, fruit juices, dried fruits, um, plants like aloe vera are pretty rich in, in potassium. Coconut water is very rich in potassium. Um, there are some more like carn carnivorous type stuff, um, like bacon is high in potassium and these kind of uh, more uh, like, uh, I guess we would call them uh, prepared meats, sausages, things like that. But for the most part, potassium is going to come from natural carbohydrate sources in nature. This is why we crave these things, especially in the summertime when we're sweating a lot. Um, and in every season, if you're eating seasonally, you'll find a potassium rich source there available for you, whether that's melons, squashes, potatoes, fruits, those are the places that we get the most potassium from. Amazing. Yeah. I didn't realize our potassium needs were quite so high and it's, it's pretty challenging to get potassium. I find without supplementing a little bit of it with an electrolyte mix. Yeah. Um, I would and agree. I, you know, I don't want to depend on supplements, but I think we kind of have to sometimes. Would you agree yeah. with that? Yeah. I think with our soil being where it is nowadays, it's just been very depleted. Um, we're having to eat a lot more volume to get the same mm -hmm. amount of uh, minerals that we would have gotten a hundred, 150 years ago. Uh, we're not drinking this mineral rich mineral water. So I would agree that sometimes supplements are necessary. I try to encourage sticking to whole foods as much as possible. So I'll say like an electrolyte mix or um, even like coconut water powder is a great source of potassium. If you can, if you can swing it, having a whole food source is great because your body knows what to do with it. Yeah. Sometimes supplements can be necessary to bridge those gaps. Yeah. Isn't cream of tartar high in potassium? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a product of the winemaking industry that is just the, the potassium overspill. And some people really like to use it. It doesn't always sit well for everyone, but it can be a great cheap source of potassium if it works for you. Yeah. Cause you know that, I think you had mentioned it in one of your posts about potentially using it in adrenal cocktails if you didn't have, um, coconut water. Yeah. Yep. It's a, it can be a great source for a lot of people. 
little cheap and cheerful hack for you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> baking soda, adding baking soda to your bath is also a great way to get sodium in and salt in if you if you need stuff like that as well. Like if you're just you can't get enough salt, adding that to your Epsom salt bath can be a great way to get some sodium in as well. Oh, that's good to know. You said that you make your own, you can make your own magnesium bicarbonate. How do you do that? Yeah. So you would take, uh, it does need to be carbonated water. So water that's charged with CO2. So whether you buy some spring water that's carbonated or you make your own with like a soda stream machine. Um, and then you, there's a lot of, uh, there's a few products on the market now specifically for making magnesium bicarbonate. So when the hydro magnesium hydroxide mixes with the CO2, it actually turns into bicarbonate. So uh, some people like to go the cheap route and just use like a cheap magnesium hydroxide powder. I'd be careful with that because magnesium hydroxide, if it's not dissolved with the CO2, it can be pretty toxic. So you don't want to be intaking a lot of magnesium hydroxide that hasn't been converted. So um, I like like pristine hydro has a great mineral blend that you can use to make magnesium bicarbonate. And there's a few other brands out there as well. Um, but yeah, it, it can be a very, I guess, budget-friendly option for people that don't want to buy the pre-made bicarbonate that can be quite expensive. Right. What do you think of citrate, magnesium citrate? Yeah. So it just depends on where it comes from. Magnesium citrate is bound to citric acid. So citric acid, the, um, the production of citric acid is what's used is often mold to create citric acid. Mm. So people just want to be careful. It can also impact our uh, levels of ceruloplasmin, which is a special enzyme that helps create uh, active copper. So if people are relying on citrate to, you know, go to the bathroom using it as a laxative, which many people do, uh, it can, it can actually impact mineral levels throughout the body. So I tend to stay away from it. There are certain applications, like it can help break up calcium oxalates in the body. There are some ways to use it as a tool, but uh, I'm just careful with it because of the use of mold of genetically modified mold in the process of citric acid production. And also just, it's not my preferred source of magnesium. It's not very highly absorbable. So if someone were using it to relieve constipation, what would you suggest if they'd been using it for a while? Yeah. I mean, get to the bottom of the constipation. Usually constipation is there for a reason. You know, when you're in this kind of poor metabolism state, your bowels mm -hmm. will move a lot slow, a lot more slowly. Your neurotransmitters are impacted, which can impact transit and motility time. Um, but sometimes just simply switching it out for the transdermal or um, taking glycinate or malate is is enough to keep things moving as well because magnesium is a relaxant and your colon is a muscle. So the colon needs to both contract and relax and calcium helps it contract and magnesium helps it relax. So we want those two minerals in balance. Mm -hmm. That's that's good to know. I don't want to keep you for too much. I know where I could just keep talking to you yeah. forever, but I want to quickly touch on PCOS um, yeah. because I know that you received a diagnosis of PCOS and I'd love for you to just touch on it, what it is, um, how it presents itself and some of the ways that it can be treated. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that the, the diagnosis criteria is kind of always changing. Every doctor goes by a different diagnosis criteria. Um, but typically it's, they're looking for high androgens. Um, they're looking for blood sugar dysregulation, weight gain, and they're actually looking for what they would call cysts on the ovaries. I have a little bit of a beef with the name polycystic ovarian syndrome, because I think it, that really confuses women. They think it's a issue with cysts on their ovaries, but in the medical literature, uh, cysts is a word 
used to refer to follicles. And so when a woman is in her menstrual cycle in the follicular phase, or follicle phase, we can call it, um, there's multiple follicles racing towards ovulation to become that dominant follicle that ends up dropping the egg. And so when a woman has PCOS and gets an ultrasound and they're looking for these cysts or follicles, what's really happening is the follicles are not maturing towards ovulation. So poly many cystic ovary syndrome. They're seeing many follicles on the ovaries. That's all it is. And it's really, it has nothing to do with the ovaries. It's every and everything to do with the metabolism. It's a metabolic disorder. Mm-hmm. And so I think it can be a, very confusing for women, but what's happening is a problem with the metabolism. The, the body's not ovulating regularly. So there's oftentimes a, a serious estrogen to progesterone imbalance. The body's not making very much progesterone at all. Estrogen's kind of spinning out of control. Um, androgens can be another, uh, like having high androgens, whether that's adrenal androgens like DHEA or, uh, over ovarian androgen, like testosterone can be high. So either one, and that can drive the irregular hair growth or like on the face or the chest or the belly button. Um, it can drive acne, oily scalp, hair loss, things like that. But high elevated levels of insulin are going to be the thing that drives this high androgen production or stress. Like we talked about before, adrenal hormones and the body is producing all this stress hormones. DHEA can also be kind of, it's a precursor for both testosterone and estrogen. The body can turn it into either. And so it's a way the body's protecting itself. So with PCOS, the biggest thing that's the most important is blood sugar regulation and stress management. Most women who have PCOS have increased high amounts of stress hormones, these adrenal hormones. They've been running off of cortisol and adrenaline for a long period of time. Their blood sugar is imbalanced. They've been eating irregular meals, sometimes their whole life. A lot of women that I've worked with, I've worked with so many women who have had, uh, who have PCOS and most women, um, I call it like first child syndrome (laughs) where, uh, most of these women have actually had intense amounts of pressure put on them from a very young age to perform, to become successful. Uh, it's like the oldest child syndrome. And I find it very interesting that they've stepped up to the plate to kind of take that like oldest firstborn, um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to succeed and take care of everyone and, and, uh, wear the weight of the world. And in turn, they literally start sprouting a beard. Um, they jump into that masculine hustle and then all of a sudden their body takes that more masculine turn. So there is a big emotional mental kind of component to it, a nervous system dysregulation component to it. But what is happening is it's causing this metabolic dysfunction where the cells are not getting the sugar they need. They need. So in turn, the bodies may be storing a bunch of fuel for later, but it's actually starving for energy at the same time. So the goal with PCOS is to regulate the stress hormones, to bring balance back to the system so that the thyroid function can uh, return back to normal. Um, there's even an experiment that was done a long time ago where removing the thyroid from rats immediately induced uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome in the rats. So there's a big connection between thyroid function and polycystic ovarian syndrome. And that kind of trickles down to our ability to detoxify estrogen, our progesterone to estrogen balance, and of course, our fertility. The thyroid is really like sometimes termed the third ovary. It really impacts our fertility. So is PCOS like a lifelong thing once it's diagnosed? 
well, it's not, it wasn't a lifelong thing for me. Okay, well, <laughs> <there's>, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, there's many women that uh, I've been able to work with or I've been able to talk to that have said that by restoring their metabolic function and supporting their body with the right minerals and balancing their blood sugar has completely um, at least gotten rid of the signs of PCOS on their lab tests and their right. testing. And um, they've been able to get ovulating again, have regular cycles again. So I think that there is a lot of hope for women as long as they don't take that, that diagnosis on as their identity, which I had to choose at a very young age to not do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I let, I let it go. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you said that. Um, I'm in school studying psychology right now, and it's actually something that, uh, that we talk about in university is not identifying with, with illness and how physicians have to be so careful of, of diagnosing because people can really take that on. And, and how do you even know the diagnosis is real, real? Wow. Wow. Yeah. That I would, I would agree with that completely. I'm glad that you're talking about that in school. That's amazing. Yeah. I was shocked. I mean, it was just one of my psych, my psych classes. Um, I was shocked to hear it in a mainstream kind of degree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that people are becoming more aware of it, especially now I'm sure you're seeing like all these psych diagnoses as well are just exploding out of control. And I know, you know, as working with so many people, they really do take their diagnoses and make it a part of their identity. And once it's a part of your identity, why would you want to get rid of part of your identity? Um, it can be, it can really cause the mind games. Yeah. 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 The DSM is like getting like this, it's just getting yeah. bigger and bigger every yeah. year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so treatment for PCOS is kind of the same thing when you're talking about, uh, like a pro metabolic approach. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's important to approach it with caution. And, you know, I think there's some people in the space that always take uh, everything that people say and blow it out of proportion. You know, one of the main foundational principles of eating for for your metabolism is getting enough protein, carb, and fat. And so I think when people have been eating just protein and fat and vegetables for so long, they see the carbohydrates and they kind of run with them. And it's important to remember that if you were already in a metabolically unstable place, and then you put you in putted um, more things that might cause metabolic instability, like keto or fasting or low carving, you're in a place where your body might not be able to handle carbohydrates super well. So you want to in include those things very mindfully and stick to the whole food sources. But yes, it's very important for women with PCOS, especially women with PCOS to be mindful of their metabolism, to practice, you know, eating within an hour of waking. That's something that really can calm the adrenals down. Mm-hmm. Um, eat every couple of hours, you know, some smaller meals that have protein and carb to kind of keep the blood sugar stable and take some pressure off the liver, um, to maximize sleep and work on minerals. These things are important for everybody, but they're especially important for someone who's already in a very metabolically imbalanced place, like someone who's struggling with PCOS. But I would encourage somebody who is struggling with the symptoms of PCOS to not treat themselves as like this unique unicorn Mm -hmm. that, um, is different than everyone else because they have PCOS. It's just a more metabolically imbalanced place. Like you might just be further along than somebody else that is in a, is in a less of a bad place metabolically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hold on. My dog has decided she's going to wake up and squeak a toy. <laughs> no worries. This is my new puppy. Oh my goodness. Is she a poodle? Yeah. 
Oh, I love poodles. They're oh my gosh. She's her, na- so her name's cute. Pebbles. My other uh my other dog Winnie, who is a Yorkie cross, isn't her biggest fan, but <laughs> maybe maybe they'll warm up. Yeah. <laughs> so cute. Um okay, so I like to end the podcast by asking some questions, just some more fun questions. Yeah. So we'll we'll end the podcast with those. Okay. If you found out the world was going to end in a year, how would you spend the rest of your time? Mm, I think I would do exactly what I'm doing now. Me and my fiance just bought an RV. We're going to travel the country for a while. And so I would do what I'm doing now. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. What is the lie that you tell yourself most often? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, uh, I think the, the two words is I can't. So mm-hmm. just saying like, oh, I can't do that. And I have to always catch myself and say like, no, that's a lie. Like you can, you can do it. Um, mm-hmm. So always kind of breaking that ceiling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are the day-to-day things you enjoy doing the most? And do you find yourself doing them often? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I sit, would say it changes from day to day, but I really do like my routine. I love, I do love to exercise. I love to work out. Um, I love to study and research and these are the things that I really love to do um and I do do them often wonderful that's so wonderful at the end of your life what are three things you want to be remembered for hmm. I would say that if I could just touch somebody's life and just change it just slightly I think that would be enough for me um but uh, I want to be remembered for making people feel good about themselves. I think feeling good is is important. Um, I want to be remembered for making people feel empowered. Um, and then for just being honest about mm-hmm. who I am, you know, being vulnerable and showing who I am to the world and not trying to hide that. Mm. Well, I tell you that you have definitely made such a big impact on my life. I remember hearing you on a podcast and you said you have to eat your way out of the spot that you're in. And it was so empowering and it's like it just it really it shifted something in me when I heard you say that so that was extremely impactful oh that's so special I'm honored that I I was able to say that yeah and what advice would you like to leave our listeners with in regard to their health Mm. If I could give you one piece of advice it would be to not take everything so seriously and Mm -hmm. to really remember that this is a journey that we none of us make it out alive in. So instead of taking it seriously and making everything so black and white, enjoy yourself, learn yourself, become more self-compassionate and self-aware, like really stop to smell the roses because that's what this is about. If you can't do that, then why would you even want health anyways? Having Mm -hmm. health is to live well. And if you're not living well, then why would you even want health anyways? Yeah. Love that. And where can people find you? Yeah, the best place to find me would be uh, on my Instagram at Just Cash Wellness or my website, justcashwellness.com. And there's many free goodies if people want to learn a little bit more about metabolic markers and things like that. Please check it out. Um, there's plenty uh, to offer. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. Well, Jessica, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing all your information and your knowledge and your love and your light with us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you gained better insight into how you can be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please leave me a review as your reviews get this message of better health out there. You can also follow me on Instagram at Lena Jade's Healthy Life, where I post fitness, nutrition, and psychology content pretty much every day. All right, you guys, that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode. And as you go throughout your day, always remember, you are powerful over your health.